Welcome to the Data Driven Podcast. I'm Dominic Bohan, the host of the Data Driven Podcast here, and today we've got a special episode for you, which is going to be guest hosted by Deidre Downing, who is the Chief Learning Officer at Story IQ. Deidre's got a wealth of experience in education focused on teaching large enterprises the value of data literacy. I'm thrilled to invite Deidre and some of her friends to take the mic and share their knowledge with you, our loyal listeners. Okay. Here's a special data literacy episode of the Data Driven Podcast, guest hosted by Deidre Downing, the Chief Learning Officer at Story IQ. Welcome to the Data Driven Podcast, where we dive deep into getting more value from our business data. Whether you're a data professional, leader, or just curious about developing your data skills, the Data Driven Podcast is here to guide you along your journey. My name is Deidre Downing from Story IQ, and this week we're going to discuss data, AI, and improving workplace communication. Joining me today is Masood Alabash, who is the CEO of Amadeus, which is an AI-powered project management, collaboration, documentation, and communication tool for the entire company. Amadeus is a next-generation software built for AI using object messaging and intelligent objects. Today, Masood and I are going to discuss data, AI, and collective intelligence. Masood, thank you so much for joining us today. I think we have a very interesting conversation in store. Thank you for having me. Sure. And, you know, I think we need to start off. If you could just sort of explain the idea of collective intelligence for our listeners here, so we're all working off the same definition. Okay, so if you really try to take a scientific approach, if you start from intelligence in general, how I would define it, or at least the mechanics of it, intelligence is really is sort of an optimization. And uh, let me take uh, an example as an analogy. When we first, uh, you know, built computers and we solved a lot of problems, we were even able to write programs that would beat most people in chess, but they couldn't really do what a two-year-old could do, which is detecting a cat in a photo or, you know, in an environment. So we kind of uh, started looking to human brains and how is it that a two-year-old can easily quickly learn what a cat is and then wherever that cat or different kinds of cats show up you just she points out points to the cat saying oh there's a cat so we kind of sliced the human brain and started to look at it and realize the there are a bunch of cells connected together and then from there we came up with the idea of what's called neural net uh, neural nets are basically uh, cells organized in a hierarchical fashion, and they're layers. You know, you have lower layers, like a, a pyramid almost, connected to the upper layers, and and so on and so forth. But uh, when you know, we came up with theories how how these things work. But fast forward, when you start training your neural net, essentially you you mimic that and you connect the these layers together randomly almost and uh, in the beginning it's stupid it doesn't really know what to do but you let's say we want to train it to detect photo of a cat so we get statistically good samples of cat pictures and we come up with magical ways of training this neural net model and once it's trained uh it becomes very smart and the people know i've seen it it's like how now today what how ai can easily if you store your own pictures on apple or google uh you know type somebody's name, it figures out and shows up all the photos. So we've accomplished that. But once you open up that box to see where did this intelligence go, yeah, the cells remain as the cells, but these links have changed, completely changed. Some of them were always there, they disappear, you know, and the, and, and the way we represent that 
computers is with numbers. It's like I said, number from zero to one. But in short, the intelligence for performing a particular function, like detecting a cat, is an optimization of links between the nodes, essentially. So once you optimize communication between these nodes for that particular function, you've created intelligence. And by way of analogy, if you get uh, a group of people in an organization that are performing a particular task, let's say we get together to make chairs or we get together to make radios or whatever, whatever task we're, if you take the humans as those nodes, as those cells, if we figure out how to optimize communication amongst ourselves, where such that information between each individual is exchanged at the right time and the right place, um, then you've uh, created collective intelligence. So if you imagine the communication systems are really nervous systems amongst humans. If you imagine, you know, 15 of us connected together through email, anyone who's dealt with email knows that that's not optimal. You know, I'll get emails that I don't need and then I figure out how, okay, I got to route this to Susie. Oh, why did I get this email? Why am I copied on this one? So you spend, and, and, and email is a very good example of the dysfunctionality, or maybe uh, there are better words to describe that, of essentially the impasse or the challenge to creating collective intelligence at work. It's all about communication at the end of the day. I love the uh, the email example. I feel like it, it made me think immediately about how when you come back from vacation, you've got to you know try to deal with your inbox, and as you said, most of it could have been rerouted, and it's it's not timely information anymore that you need. So, collective intelligence. There are two factors. The factor is okay. So, is the information that I'm supposed to send who does it belong to? And the other is when I have this information and I can I have to send it to Joe or Jane, I sit on it for two minutes. Okay, so and you know, as this num- the number of individuals in an organization increase and that scales, that becomes more critical. And human beings are the least reliable elements in these machines that are composed of humans and networks. And these networks are if you if you imagine most, you know, any organization is now organized with electronic networks. You know, we have our own original software. You know, it's like, let's say, you know, we're a bunch of accountants, you know, uh, sitting here and I uh, have the accounts receivable screen in front of me and I enter data and I save it and you're my boss and you're sitting there and looking at a general ledger. I'm communicating to you basically, but using that screen, I, I, I save whatever data I have and it shows up in an aggregated form on your screen. Well, you know, or a manufacturing software or whatever specialized software that we have. So most organizations have uh, specialized software or a collection of different types of software that they use to communicate with each other. We don't look at it as a communication system, but they are. That's what they are. And they communicate data in a very structured fashion. Age, 47, you know, expense, $23, lunch expense, $57. And so that's structured information. You can't, you know, you have to really follow these strict rules and that shows up somewhere else on somebody else's screen. And if you can imagine that as a nervous system in an organization and, and human beings are, are the connected, uh, the actual cells that are connected to these nodes. Now, humans don't communicate in structured fashion. <laughs> you know, we're not computers. We use natural language. And that's how email showed up in the work setting to kind of uh, uh, became popular to cover 
that shortcoming because natural language carries a lot of subtleties and a lot of information. You know, it's like if I'm a sales guy, I come in and put an order for, I don't know, 50 radios or 1,000 radios in the system and just punch it in. And then I turn around and send an email to people in the warehouse or manufacturing saying, hey, you know, Susie, you know, this is a very uh, important thing. Please make sure that, you know, so I, whatever information I need to communicate with email. And there are lots of reasons email failed. And it, and mainly because it's, it, it's, it, the model is flawed. Email's problem is that the pivot of that model of communication model is reliant on the individual. The individual decides how to route that information. Like I said, individuals are the least reliable nodes in the network. And we have other tools that showed up after email. We could look at the evolution in, in communication tools in the workplace. We started with software and software has its own history, how it showed up and why it looks the way it does. And then email showed up to kind of cover the gaps of software for carrying natural language. But because it was not scalable due to its model, and the next thing that showed up uh, was what we call the uh, these uh, enterprise uh, social network tools. You know, basically Facebooks for the workplace that are, you know, Slack, Yammer, Microsoft Teams. And the reason that showed up is just to cover the gaps in email. Uh, so if you look at, if you analyze communication, you've got the individual and you've got the message. So in, in email, the pivot is on the individual. In these uh, other tools, they shifted the pivot to the actual subject or the message. So instead of me sending an email to Susie about painting the chair or, you know, uh, we'll come up with a channel called paint. So we try to kind of figure out how to map the workflow and uh, kind of uh, associates channels uh, that represent aspects of the workflow. So people don't have to be individual based, they become information based. So I match my information that I have in my hand and I post it in the group or the channel called paint. And that's got its own problems. You know, it, it, it improved the email, but now we've got, <laughs> we've got information in original systems. We have information sitting in email and we have sitting information in all these channels and these silos. And that's where we are. We have a really complete mess on our hand, in a sense. Mess it is, definitely. Well, you know, I know that you are passionate about thinking about how AI can make us more efficient and perhaps improve these connections. So where do you think AI can come in and, and what systems do you suggest employing so that we can have, you know, those better communications and ultimately better collective intelligence? Actually, the collective intelligence aspect of it, when we as humans age or we have the malfunctions within our brain, essentially all these diseases like Parkinson's disease or dementia, and there are actually aspects of damages that occur to the linings or the connections between the cells. So, and the information doesn't really move efficiently between these cells in your brain. So you can really look at our organizations as diseased brains. You're with these giant brains that individuals are the cells and these networks, the software systems and the email and the, the these channels, they're essentially, the, the, they're the, the, the uh, uh, connections in the network or the, the nervous systems of the, these organizations because they don't function properly. So we really act like a, a diseased or we try to do the best. And the way we try to do the best, usually individuals that are very creative show up in these groups and they really don't do anything special. You know, like if we're making radios, they're not really engineers and they're not really radio makers or 
but they actually understand, they know who's who, who does what, and who's good at what, and they become information facilitators. You know, Susie's there. She doesn't really, she's not an engineer. She doesn't design, design amplifiers, or but got a group of engineers, a group of different people with different specialties, and everybody functions well in, in a small group. But when Susie leaves, then everything falls apart. It's the same people. But Susie really didn't do anything. What she did is she she was the information facilitator. So she understood. They understand where uh, how to move the information from the right person to to. It's not optimal. It's not perfect. But that's how organizations work. And the successful ones have a lot of those Susies that understand how to facilitate information between these the human nodes, if you will. And AI has come in now, and it, and it's making a lot of uh, promises. And as we can see, you know, people, most people have experienced ChatGPT, I'm sure. And ChatGPT is, real, is a class of AI referred to as large language models, LLMs for sure. And what they do, they're basically these vacuum cleaners. It's like ChatGPT was this giant vacuum cleaner that sucked all the information, all the texts from the internet, and it really squeezed it and compressed it into this ball of knowledge. And whenever you prompt it, you basically tickle it and it decompresses that piece of information for you in, in, in a natural language. And it looks amazing. It's really a form of uh, compression of knowledge and decompression of that knowledge. It's not uh, very, uh, it ha- doesn't have high fidelity. It doesn't give you the exact thing that it read, but it kind of tries to give you a good statistically representative of whatever it, it's read. And it does it in its own magical way. If you imagine that there's one solution that there, obviously, if, if you, if you're an engineer and, and you've designed LLMs, you've done that with the internet and you can see exactly how wonderful it is and what kind of problems it solves. The obvious thing is, Hey, why don't we turn a, a specialized vacuum cleaner like this, like an LLM and point it to this corporation or this organization and suck all the data from there? And then create this intelligent agent within that organization that you can ask it any question about all the information that is spread around in these silos of emails and chat channels and software. That's one method. And it's an obvious method. It's a kind of a low hanging fruit. And that's what's kind of being pushed. Uh, there are lots of companies that have been funded and they're creating these specialized uh, large language models for different companies. And there's some value to that. But we think that's limited. We think that's, uh, and there are lots of issues with that in terms of permissions and whatnot. And we as humans, we don't just need information. Because when you come to an organization, organizations evolved as these biological entities. They're these, uh, if you think of society as a, as, as a, a large bi- biological entity, companies are these organelles, essentially. And they're organized based on what we call workflow, but workflow really is an abstraction of the assembly line, but which was invented in the 1900s. And that's how we're able to come together at 500 people, a thousand people and uh, make these amazing things. And this is how we impact the planet is by organizing. And the way we organize, we get together not to chat about, you know, the baseball game over the, uh, over the weekend. Of course, we do that as humans, but we're there to make radios. We're there to uh, create a product or some sort of service collectively. And we all specialize. You do something, I do something. And towards that manufacturing or whatever we're outputting, you know, 
we, you need information, I need information, and, and I give information to the network. You need the information from the network, from this nervous system that we've gathered around. But unfortunately, the, these nervous systems are in the form of the existing software, the email, and these channels coming from Slacks and Microsoft Teams and whatnot, and they're spread out. And the human is really uh, struggling to try and uh, find the information at the right place and the right time. And that's why we hate work. Because if I am a graphics designer, you know, I want to design stuff. I want to kind of make things. Now I have to kind of figure out how to send this file to Susie. And you know, I've got information from people want other things from me. And I've got to figure out who to send it to. I got to process that, analyze it. So I actually am burdened with information processing in order to route it to the right person at the right time. And also try to figure out all this stuff that's come to my inbox or all these other tools sort them out and which, figure out which one is priority and which one is really information and what's noise. That's where the problems, and this was really the motive for me as an engineer or entrepreneur to try to figure out how to solve this problem. And I've been working on this thing for the last 12 years. And I started quite a number of companies, and this is by actually, Amadeus is my third technology company. And when you start, you're kind of like a one person in the old days, at least, and everything works perfectly. You have meetings with yourself, you, have, yeah, you know exactly what you want. But the minute you hire the second person, you really, it's not one plus one becomes two. One plus one becomes 1.8, really, you know, depending on how well you communicate. And as you add the third person, fourth person, you know, you have this diminishing return. And that, that has something to do with the way you're organized, how you communicate information. So that was really my motivation to try to understand this communication problem. And uh, throughout my research, I, you know, I've come up with an interesting model that demonstrates the capacity to optimize communication amongst humans. And that's the system that the, the model that I call object messaging and intelligence. And it's connected to AI in a very interesting way. I mean, that's so interesting. And again, I love this idea of the first example of how, you know, chat GTP and so many places are using AI, this idea of like, there's, there's a Susie on call is still, as you said, maybe not as optimal. And so this going even deeper, it seems like there's so much possibility. Can you, you know, think about what the, what this looks like in the future and the implications for business and, and their value if we're able to adopt this method that you're talking about? Yeah, well, let me, let me first kind of give you a mental image of what that would look like. Okay. Imagine that you get rid of all these email tools and channels and, and software. And, and the reason actually the, so, the software, the problem with the software is that, you know, it was designed in the 1960s and somebody like me would come into an organization and say, hey, you know, we've got this fascinating thing. It's called a computer. We can actually automate a lot of your stuff. What are you doing? What are your processes? Oh, well, you know, we're making X, Y, Z. And, and, I, and I fill out this information on this paper. This paper has you know, three sections. I fill out the first section and that's the information Susie needs. I give it to her and she fills out the next section and she reads what I've got you know, and moves around. This is our process. And if it's red, she gives it to Joe. If it's blue, she gives it to Jane. You know, So it's this workflow-based process that uh, a paper is used to carry information. And uh, the workflow that is this uh, kind of a multi-dimensional, monstrous uh, assembly line in a sense, right? And so, well, good. You know, give me those forms, and I'm going to stick them on the computer. And it, it, you know, you don't have to fill it by hand or type it, and you don't even have to send it to the accountant at the end and compile it and send a report to the boss. 
I just take these forms and I take the data and it gets into a database and you don't even have to give it to Jane. You know, Jane just uh, has her own screen, shows up and she's the data, right? And the account doesn't have to compile all this stuff and add it all up. You know, I've got a magical calculator inside. I get all the data and just show the report in interesting ways to the boss, real time. Now, here's a graph, here's, you know, the accounts receivable, total, here's your... So that became the automation model. And that automation model in terms of taking these dumb forms, sticking them on the screen, stayed the same. And these forms really took structured data for the most. And then and I explained why, how email showed up and, and, and how humans communicate. Imagine you just replace all this stuff with this magical thing that you get in front of your computer, you turn it on, you have this butler, it's this electronic intelligent butler that knows who you are, knows your role within the workflow, it understands the workflow, this butler. It knows this complicated maze of this multidimensional workplace. It knows who you are. It knows everybody else, what they do, who they are, what kind of access they have to information. And it's, it's sitting there in the network and it's, uh, it's a kind of an intelligent object. And it interacts with all these, all these other intelligent objects inside the system. And they all talk using natural language, which is kind of an engineering thing, actually, because you, now engineers get these the different parts of systems talk to each other using APIs. Their APIs are very rigid. They're static. Every time something changes, it breaks apart. But so the model that, uh, that, that we're proposing is and make, make the system instead of these dumb forms, make these systems as a collection of these intelligent objects. And these objects not only know what they are, but they also know their stakeholders and they know their, their state where they are within the workplace and they understand critical events that occur and who needs to know it at which time. So when you open up your computer, the thing shows up and says, hey, Susie, you need to see me. I'll give you a good example. Let's, uh, uh, let's just take like a medical record as, as an example. Let's say I'm an engineer and I take x-rays. You know, So somebody shows up and I take an x-ray of a chest and I you know, save it on the computer saying, you know, the, this is an x-ray of chest and the Masood took this picture. We already do that. And it knows the system is very straightforward. You know, here's a date that was taken. But imagine that X-ray was intelligent. Instead of this dumb thing, it was an intelligent object. And the way we do that is we actually add a large language model to it. And we feed all this information of X-ray and date and all that to it. So it knows that it's an X-ray. It was born on this date and Masood took it. So that's instead of sucking all the information on the internet or the corporate, we just, it just sucks that piece of information. And the personality of this LLM is now I'm an x-ray. I'm a chest x-ray. Oh, I know Masood took me, but I know Susie is my patient and Dr. Smith is my primary doctor and I'm programmed. So the programmers programmed me. So that the minute I'm taken, I look at myself and I go, Oh, I'm a chest x-ray. Uh, so if I'm a chest x-ray, I need to travel through the network. And I have these permission tokens. I can go off the internet securely and hit myself against this intelligent x-ray processing model that's an AI somewhere in Mayo Clinic. And I push my film in there and then I wait for the report and the report spits out in, in natural language. And I read the report because I'm programmed to do that. Now, this is traditional programming. That is uh, deterministic, straightforward programming that we know how to do. So the object is programmed to do this. It uh, goes and it uh, spits out and report. The model spits out from Mayo Clinic. And the LLM now is programmed to take that report and read it. And it reads it and understands it because uh, it's an x-ray. And just like almost like an individual, 
right? Its personality is an X-ray. It can read the natural language. It reads it and it's programmed also prior saying, if you read and highlight certain sections and you see anything about cancer, immediately run to your doctor and then wave your hands and alert him and say, I'm cancerous. So the X-ray is taken, goes and hits the Mayo Clinic uh, model, reads the report, shoots to Dr. Smith's inbox, top of the inbox saying, hey, you got to see me. And now Dr. Smith just opened up his uh, computer and just shows up something at the top. So he's an X-ray saying, yeah, look at me, look at me. Opens it up and the X-ray says, look, I'm cancerous. So I go, well, and the X-ray is actually programmed. It's very intelligent because it says, hey, I know you're primary doctor, but you don't really have a specialty on this. But I just uh, uh, talked to the appointment object of Dr. Jones in another clinic, and he's a cancer specialist. And then I negotiated in two minutes, we're going to have a video conference with him. And, and by the way, you had a, an appointment uh, in, in two minutes, but it was a simple appointment. And I talked to your appointment object and we rescheduled that. It was not important. This is more important. And so here it is. The video goes, boom. And guess what? You, the doctors are talking and the x-ray is sitting there listening and watching. Okay. And once it's all done, they all talk about it, the conversation and the video is recorded and the transcript is understood by the LLM. And they talk about everything at the end. They talk about uh, playing golf or whatever. It, the the x-ray knows, well, that's not about me because that LLM is trained to know that it's an x-ray. So, and it's got the constraints and it, so it can avoid the typical hallucination problems of LLMs as well, because it's tightly guided in that sense. And at the end, the video doesn't need to be filed anywhere or stored in a folder or, or any of that because the object holds that. That x-ray says, this is my information. Let me hold and I keep track of it. And by the way, I understand all that conversation and, and it goes away. So like, you know, six weeks or six months later, for some reason, that x-ray shows up in the doctor's inbox and doctor doesn't even remember because he's busy. He's got thousands of clients. He says, what are you? So why you don't remember me? I was like, I belong to, uh, belong to one of your patients. And, and you know, you, you remember you talked to Dr. Smith about this? And, and he said this about that. You want to, you, you want to see what you said in that three seconds? Let me show you that three seconds of that video. Boom. Just imagine that intelligence within that object. Now, every single object in that system are programmed, but they all have an LLM. And whether it's your blood test or whatever it is, and even the object, if, it, if there's a blood test and the blood test itself is almost like a super component where because the blood test contains your blood count, your LDL, your HDL. Imagine the HDL in there is a intelligent object or the LDL. It's like, uh, so, you know, the super component can talk to and say, graph yourself over the last years, you know, compare yourself with HDL with the weight uh, and, and show up as a graph on the screen, right? So, and the communication with these objects is using natural language, right? And so that is the kind of an image that uh, you can visualize as what a system that is redesigned using object messaging and intelligent object could look like. So humans are not responsible for sending messages to anyone. They're not responsible for storing information in a particular place to look for it. Because uh, if you create these intelligent objects, they're responsible to maintain the information about themselves, understand the information about themselves, understand the workflow, and understand these critical events that occur to them. And based on these critical events, because what happens is as they're wa tra traversing the workflow, things happen. They bounce against each other and different things happen. For example, in our project management system that we've designed based on this model. 
if uh, a salesperson comes in and uh, you know wants to uh, out in the market, somebody wants a new feature, you know, like they want a special blinking light on some screen, you know, it comes in and creates that feature. He opens it up, says, "Yeah, I'm creating this feature," and that feature knows that it's a feature for a particular project. The minute it's created, it knows the salesperson created it. It flies right into the project manager's uh, triage area in the inbox. Says, "Hey, you know, I'm a feature." Uh, the project manager says, well, let me see, I'm not, not you know, your priority is not that high. I'm going to lower your priority. The minute that happens, says, oh, that's a critical event. I'm going to go back to the salesperson and show up. Hey, you know, look what happened to me. My priority went low. It's like that whole conversation could happen in a chat channel, but that chat channel belongs to that feature. And it's holding all this information, the dialogue between them. And it understands it because it has an LLM. So imagine these objects as tiny little intelligent entities similar to humans, but they have their own personalities and they carry all the information about themselves. So humans in this way are really removed or the burden of processing information and routing it to the right person at the right time is completely removed from humans. And once you do that, by default, you create optimal communication between all the human nodes. And this is how you create maximum collective intelligence within organizations. Wow. Well, I think you've just brought us full circle there. And I know you've certainly given me a lot to think about, particularly around, yeah, where, where this could all go and the efficiencies and the value. And I think that's, that's probably a good place for us to wrap up because tomorrow we're going to keep the conversation going still around communication, but this Yeah, you've really got my my brain thinking here about what we could be doing if, again, the humans as processors are taken out of the equation because we are the weakest link, as you say. Yeah, can I add one more comment to this? It's uh, if you look at the LLMs today, the LLMs are this giant vacuum cleaner that suck a lot of information and that they don't really understand the stakeholders or the workflow. That's the problem. The model we're presenting saying, no, let's keep the existing workflow. Let's keep people in the roles that they have, but let's take another look at the way we've been traditionally building software and reorganize building software instead of dumb forms on the screen. Take into consideration the natural language and dialogue of humans that is a critical piece of information that belongs to these entities. Because when you and I talk about an x-ray, that information, that dialogue is information. And it's a, it belongs to the x-ray, right? And it needs to keep that. So we actually are saying, let's make lots of tiny little models with these LLMs. And your system is a collection of all these intelligent models that are interacting and they're aware. And the possibility of hallucination is extremely limited because yeah, you know, it doesn't need to talk about the whole world. The X-ray knows that it's just an X-ray, or the transistor object just knows I'm a transistor, and here's my direct attributes, right? So that's really the difference. A good friend of mine actually refers to that as a swarm intelligence. You've given a lot of food for thought to our listeners today. So thanks again to Masood Alabash, the CEO of Amadeus, for joining us tomorrow. You should definitely join us again when Masood and I continue this conversation and talk about how data can improve workplace communications. If you can't wait until our next episode and you'd like to learn more about Masood, you can find a link to his LinkedIn profile in our show notes or visit his company website at omadeus.com, O-M-A-D-E-U-S.com. Just one link in our show notes I want to tell you about. 
If you didn't have a chance to take notes while listening to this podcast, head over to datadrivenpod.com, where we have summaries of all of our episodes and contact information for our guests. Of course, you can always reach me. Just submit an inquiry at storyiq.com. If you haven't subscribed yet and want a steady stream of data-driven brilliance in your podcast feed, we're publishing multiple episodes each week. So hit that subscribe button in your podcast app, and we'll be back in your feed tomorrow. Okay, that's all for today. But until next time, remember that when it comes to data, less is more. Thank you.